We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. It's a dip into the archive for this week's Sunday debate, a battle for the ages as we revisit 2015 and our debate, Greece versus Rome. Our panel for this debate was one whose influence is still very much being felt today. Back in 2015, pre-Brexit, pre-pandemic, none other than Boris Johnson, at that time Mayor of London, and an ardent classicist was making the case for Greece, while Mary Beard, at the time Professor of Classics at Cambridge, now lecturer in classical archaeology at the University of Sheffield, and of course very well known for her extensive career as a broadcaster and writer, championed Rome. We also have contributions from actors Max Bennett and Neve Cusack. Our host was the journalist and broadcaster Andrew Marr. Let's join the debate now. those kind of parlour games, something versus something. In the Marr family on our way to primary school, it would be Prokofiev or Shostakovich, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Well, this is the simplistic version, Greece versus Rome. Now, I have to say, for those who may not have attended very carefully to the publicity ahead of time, I should emphasise this is ancient Rome versus classical Greece, which is in many ways a bit of a disappointment to me because I was looking forward to Mary Beard speaking out for Berlusconi and Boris here making the case for Syriza. Um, These things depend upon intellectual fireworks and we have two kind of arsenals of intellectual fireworks here. We have Oxford and Cambridge. We we have two great authors who produce many, many books and television programmes. They have made the case for their studies for a very, very long time. Um, Boris, of course, is now running a city which is seething with kind of proletarian dissent, housing crisis, and 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 it's and it's and it's and and it's leaders for the lot of the time stabbing each other in the back. So, but that's why he's going for Greece, of course. All right. Um, Without more ado, Boris Johnson, making the case for Rome. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. It is no exaggeration to say that the answer to this entire debate can be found in the first scene, the first line, and indeed the first word of the greatest poem ever composed, the fountainhead of Western literature, which is, of course, the Iliad of Homer. And uh, what word does it begin with? Menin, that's right, Menin, if they are, Pelea, Joachileos, sing goddess of the wrath of Achilles, the son of Peter. Thank you. Well done, my father in the front row, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and why is, he, why is Achilles so cheesed off? Because somebody has taken away his prize, his geras, a girl by the name of Briseis of the lovely cheeks. And who has done this to him? A man who cannot run as fast as Achilles a man who is not as good at fighting as Achilles, who's less clever, less charismatic, and yet who is able to expropriate his girlfriend or slave girl war booty, to be exact, uh, because he, that man, is set in obscure and supposedly God-given authority because he is a king. 
And in the wrath of Achilles, we find not just the bruised ego of a proud man. In that first line of Greek literature, we find the first sign of meritocratic indignation. The first act of insubordination that is to become the hallmark of Greek genius. And when you read the early Greek poets and philosophers, as I do almost uninterruptedly, you will realise that you are often in the presence of rebels and satirists and debunkers. Achilles sticks it to his commander-in-chief, drunkard, dogface, with the courage of a deer. Imagine if anybody said that to the Prime Minister. And on it goes. <laughs> on it goes throughout the, uh, throughout the archaic age, the Greek spirit of insubordination. And so on. I don't like the big strutting general, says Archilochus, in words that speak down the ages to anybody who does not like being bossed around. And when you look at the pre-Socratic philosophers, they're constantly uttering the most shocking profanities. The sun is a stone, said Anaxagoras. The Ethiopians have gods with Ethiopian features, said Xenophanes. And you know what? The horses have gods who look like horses. Necues coprionic bleteroi, said Heraclitus. Dead is nastier than dung, dismissing in one three-word phrase all the ancient and holy rituals that went with the burial of the dead. A studied insult to ordinary Greek feeling, but intellectually honest. The early Greeks are challenging, they are original, and they're willing to express their feelings in a way that has never happened before. Like Sappho, going all green and trembly when she sees the object of her desires, laughing in the company of some irritatingly handsome man. He's equal with the gods, that man, who sits across from you, face to face, close enough to sip your voice's sweetness. And what excites my mind, your laughter, glittering. So, when I see you for a moment, my voice goes my tongue freezes. Fire. Delicate fire. In the flesh. Blind. Stunned. The sound of thunder in my ears. Shivering with sweat. Cold tremors over the skin. I turn the colour of dead grass and I'm an inch from dying. Thank you very much. That's Sappho. And as you uh, expect, she's called, she's called the Tenth Muse by the, uh, by the ancients. The Greeks were the first to expose their vulnerable egos and like all egotists, they were extraordinarily competitive not just in war, but in poetry and philosophy and sport and just about everything. One of the questions is, why did it all happen then? What was the reason for this flashpoint? And perhaps it was something to do with the topography of ancient Greece, the shadowy mountains and the echoey sea, as Achilles says. 25,000 miles of promontories and inlets that make Greece the country with the highest proportion of coastline to surface area in the world. So there were no big kingdoms with big rulers and loads of downtrodden peasants, but rather hundreds of little city-states arranged, as Plato said, like, frog, like frogs around the pond, puffing out their cheeks in mutual emulation. And perhaps it was the arrival of those Eastern influences, Hittite metallurgy, chariot warfare, what have you, that combined with the competitive environment of archaic Greece and produced the miracle. And when you go through that mind-blowing suite of galleries in the British Museum, you can see humanity working itself up to the Greek revelation. You go past all those Egyptian cat gods 
and dog gods and Assyrian griffins with beards like ayatollahs. And thank heavens, by the way, that the Victorians ruthlessly plundered them all from, uh, from Babylonia, since otherwise they would now be <laughs> destroyed by Daesh quite seriously. And you come then to the Duveen galleries, and you see the marbles. Your Excellency, Mr. Greek Ambassador, I'm very sorry to say this, but uh, rescued quite rightly by Elgin uh, from, from, the, from the Ottoman lime kiln. And what do you notice? You notice not only the extreme beauty of the sculpture, the first attempt at systematic anatomical realism, you see the spiritual change, because there aren't any strange hybrid animal gods, and there aren't any scenes of torture and beheading and massacre. And instead of the robotic processions of, of, of Sumerian and Babylonian and Akkadian armies of, and prisoners, there are human beings who are expressly differentiated from each other. One chap wearing sandals, another with a snood and boots, one guy got boots on, one looking this way, one looking that, one having trouble with a cow, I seem to remember. And you understand that you are looking at the ordinary people of Athens. That is who they are, and they are on the same scale in that Panathenaic frieze as the gods, because this is the moment in our story, in the human story, when the individual takes centre stage. And as Sophocles said in 441, the year that the Parthenon was being built in, in the Antigone, there are many fearsome Amazing things, Dino, how you, you translate translate Dinos? One of awesome things in the world, but none as awesome as man. It's not the gods. It's man who is the measure of all things. And what else do you see when you look at those sculptures? There's somebody missing. There's somebody missing from that frieze. Colour. Colour is well there was colour, but the colour is now missing. There is a, actually there is a spot of colour here or there, actually. Uh, any any advance on colour? Quite a good answer, but not brilliant. There's a character, there's something. uh, Who is missing? Who is the individual? Yes, Harry Mount in the front row, well done. There There is no king. We have reached the logical conclusion of that spirit of insubordination that we identified in the first line of the Iliad. We have removed the object of the wrath of Achilles, this irritating pasteboard ruler, and we have the world's first democracy. And whatever the flaws of that democracy, slavery, the treatment of women, the oppression of allies, this was the first time in history that hard power, Kratos, was entrusted to the demos, to stonemasons and dock workers and fishmongers and the rest of the 10,000 who assembled on the Pnicks. And it is no coincidence that this birth of people power took place at the same time as the most glorious burst of intellectual originality. Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Plato, Aristophanes, Phidias, Pericles, Thucydides, Herodotus, then Aristotle on into the next century. The Greeks gave us philosophy and poetry and historiography. They gave us tragedy and comedy. They gave us biography. They gave us the Olympic Games, which, by the way, were later abolished by the Romans, and rational scientific inquiry into everything from the sex and mathematics and from the sex life of the cuttlefish to the steam engine they gave us our modern system of government and what else did they give us theater thank you i've mentioned that i think uh, they they gave us rome didn't they they gave us rome rome was the creation of the ancient greeks just as modern america just as modern america is the creation of britain uh, although, the, although, and though, the, though, the, though the modern Americans don't always see it that way, uh, the Romans had no hesitation in acknowledging their debt. And yes, of course, the Romans beat the Greeks in this limited sense that they were more effective at wielding lethal violence. And in 146 BC, the legionaries smashed the sculptures of Corinth and they used priceless pictures to play checkers on. And then, of course, what happened? The Greeks turned the tables, didn't they? As Horace said, and the point that is always made in these occasions, Graecia capta ferum victorem capit et artes intulit agresti latio, right? Captured Greece, captured her savage conqueror and brought the arts to rustic Italy. What was Roman sculpture? Straightforward homage, if not copied, 
of Greek sculpture. Roman architecture followed the canons of Greek architecture like Mary's little lamb. Not, your, not this Mary, obviously. <laughs> like Mary. Roman, food, Roman food was Greek Hellenistic food with the addition of that ubiquitous radioactive fish sauce that they glooped over everything in that vulgar Roman way, uh, like ketchup. <laughs> And, and by the way, the work of Greek chefs, I owe this point to the learned Dr. Rushbrook, the work of Greek chefs was, so, was deemed so exquisite that they legally patented their dishes. Turbot seeds in goat's milk with aniseed or whatever, while Roman chefs were regarded as mere drudges and mechanics. Roman music, insofar as we know anything about it, was Greek music, except possibly for some popping tuba blasts at the games, and the great Roman writers and poets were avowedly following Greek models out of a deep, cringing sense of cultural deference. Virgil was meant to be the Latin Homer, Horace was following Alcius or Sappho, Tacitus was following Thucydides, and, and so on. And the first disadvantage they had to overcome, obviously, was what Lucretius called the Patriae Sermonis Aegestas the relative poverty of the Latin language. The Greeks had far more words to play with than Latin. They had, they had long words like apocolicintosis, which is what happens when you turn into a pumpkin, <laughs> raphanidosis, which is something else involving a, a vegetable. Uh, and they had those, all those wonderful short words like gi and ti and met and dit and poo and ga. And, uh, you know, how could the Romans manage without gi? They couldn't. They're not very easy anyway. You know, how, do you, how do you translate gi? How do you translate gi? Very difficult to translate gi. Gi gives it like that. Gi. But they did. And they did their best. They produced astonishing results. And uh, Mary, I'm not going to contest the genius of Rome. I'm not going to dispute that tonight with you. And I, I think that any of the, the, the authors that I have just mentioned, that culture, that civilization, repays a lifetime's study. But I reject some of the traditional points that are made in favour of the superiority of the Romans. I'm not sure that they were that much more inventive for all their hypercourse and their aqueducts and their brilliant way of linking their shields above themselves and all the rest of it. I think it's striking, actually, when you look at the thousand years of Roman history, how little technological progress they made, relying as they did on the, the brawn of slaves. We have no Roman gizmo that compares in its baffling complexity to the Antikythera machine that was recently uh, raised from the seabed, uh, whose function is in, in entirely unclear, at least to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, and I know, I'm sure Mary will come to this, I'm not sure that they really treated, this is a very controversial point, they really treated their women or their slaves uh, that much better than the Greeks did. Visitors to ancient Athens often complained that you couldn't tell who was slave and who was free. And to get back to Neve's brilliant uh, recitation there, show me the female Roman author who can compare with Sappho. I don't think Roman quality of life was better. Greeks lived to prodigious ages. Thales, 92. Democritus, 90. Diogenes, 89. The Pope Apollonius, 85. Plato, 80. Sophocles wrote the Oedipus at Colonus when he was in his 80s. And pretty good it is, too. And in, in some critical ways, of course, I'm afraid that the Romans are still eclipsed by the Greeks. That's not just in my view, but in view, Mary, of the ultimate arbiter of these things, the market. <laughs> Take the two great authors of epic, Homer and Virgil. I love, I love Virgil. I venerate Virgil. Uh, he's probably the greatest verbal craftsman the world has ever produced. But look at the Penguin book. Look at whose books, whose books still sell by the millions. It's not Virgil, it's Homer. Whose story was recently turned into a Hollywood epic? And I'm afraid it's just impossible to imagine Brad Pitt playing Aeneas. <laughs> because with the best will in the world, Aeneas is not a romantic lead. Italian non sponti sequor, I remember he tells Dido, which is about the feeblest breakup line anybody ever used. You know... <laughs> It's not you, babe, I've just got this historic compulsion to go and find Rome, uh, he said. <laughs> Who's, second one, whose philosophy do we study? Who, which works of philosophy do we study today in all great universities? Not Roman philosophy, but Plato and Aristotle. Still the foundations of ethics and logic and politics and metaphysics. Whose drama do we still go to watch? All over London, every, in every, every, every city in, in Europe. Sophocles, Euripides, 
the Oristia. When did you last go and see a tragedy by Seneca? <laughs> it doesn't. Finally and most crushingly to the Roman case. What about jokes? What about comedy? The Greeks invented the idea of the joke collection. They had one called the Philogelos, the laughter lover, which specialised in jokes about incompetent people. There was a very good one about the incompetent schoolteacher. He was asked the name of the mother of Priam, king of Troy. And he said, I suggest you call her Madam. <laughs> Maybe it, was, it all depended on how you told that joke. But anyway, <laughs> they were, they were, they were, there were still audiences in Britain who, go, who pay good money to go and watch Aristophanes and his brilliant inventiveness, like his idea of women staging a sex strike in the Lysistrata to, to stop a war. In fact, Lysistrata is, is still so influential today that in modern times, uh, women have staged sex strikes in Colombia, in Kenya, in the Philippines, and even in Italy, in, in homage to Lysistrata. I don't know how successful they were, but they, they, they didn't. And, and you have to ask yourself, who stages Plautus and Terence today? Nobody. Why is Aristotle, to get to the, back to where we began, why is Aristotle, uh, sorry, Aristophanes, Aristophanes immortal in a way that the Roman comic playwrights simply were not? And uh, it was right there in our opening argument about the Greek willingness to debunk and to satirize. He was willing to make fun of senior politicians like Cleon, and Pericles himself. And frankly, it is impossible to imagine a Roman playwright having the guts to take the mickey out of the emperor in the way that Aristophanes satirized Cleon or Pericles or whoever. And why was Aristophanes brave enough to mock the rulers of Athens? Because he lived in a democracy and a pluralist democracy at that. And as Pericles explains in that magnificent funeral oration on the dead of the first year of the Peloponnesian War, Athens is different and better because... We enjoy a form of government that does not emulate the institutions of our neighbours. Indeed, we ourselves are more often the model for others than their imitators. Democracy is the name we give to it, since we manage our affairs in the interests of the many, not the few. But though everyone is equal before the law in the matter of private disputes, in terms of public distinction, preferment for office is determined on merit, not by rank, but by personal worth. Moreover, poverty is no bar to anyone who has it in them to benefit the city in some way, however lowly their status. A spirit of freedom conducts, governs our conduct not only in public affairs, but also in the managing the small tensions of everyday life, where we show no animosity at our neighbour's choice of pleasures, nor cast aspersions that may hurt, even if they do not harm. Well, well I think when I listen to that speech, I still feel a sense of tingling amazement, because that is a man talking two and a half thousand years ago about ideals that still animate us, or should animate us, today. A spirit of freedom. The many, not the few. People rising on merit, everyone equal before the law, not getting hung up about your neighbour's choice of pleasures. Democracy. What did the Romans do to democracy, my friends? What did they do? They abolished it in favour of a dictatorship and then the imperial system. And why were the Romans not much good at drama? Why weren't they much interested in drama, whether tragic or comic? Because fundamentally, the whole audience was forever being dragged off to another entertainment, the games, and watching people and animals being slaughtered in a depraved ritual that was endemic in the Roman world and virtually absent for, from Greece. How many people died in that, that building that is emblematic still of Roman culture and civilization, the, Col the Colosseum? How many people were killed in it? Probably 200,000. Pig. The Greeks liked the happy release of the theatre. The Roman idea of good family entertainment was cutting the feet off some poor thief, coating his stumps with honey and letting the bears do the rest. I'm afraid that in many ways the Romans were bastards. <laughs> 
so whipped and brutalised as children that they like to inflict pain themselves. What's the most famous image uh, from all the frescoes of Pompeii? It's at, it's at one of the, the women whipping each other. Uh, what happens in Plautus and Terrace? Instead of jokes, people are hauled off to be flogged. It was a society not based on democracy, but on fear. Augustus wasn't some benign heir of the ideals of Pericles. He was a chill and subtle tyrant who massacred the population of Perugia, who gouged out the eye of an opponent with his own thumb, and who banished his own daughter and starved her to death. Far from tolerating the private lives of others, he banned adultery for all women except prostitutes, with the result that the matrons of Rome started registering themselves as prostitutes to get round the ban, and he was positively mild by comparison with his immediate Judeo-Claudian successors. A bunch of maniacs, sadists and perverts, unlike anything ever seen, I'm absolutely serious, anything ever seen in, in Greece, whose model of pan-European monarchical rule it has taken us centuries finally to shake off, in which a succession of despots such as Napoleon, Hitler and others have tried to recreate. That is no model for us, my friends, is it? That is not the ideal to which we aspire in 21st century London, the greatest university city on earth, the most cultured city on earth, open to talent from around the world, as Athens was, free, pluralistic, tolerant, and respectful of the private behaviour of our neighbours, and not just electing our politicians, but constantly making fun of them <laughs> in an Aristophanic way. Those are not Roman values, those are Greek values. And I don't have to tell you, after the events of the last week in another great and free European city, those values of freedom are neither trivial nor are they uncontested around the world. So I say to you, let's fight for those values against those who would destroy them. Let's also protect and defend that great Greek inheritance to which we lay claim. Let's teach our children Greek, obviously, the Greek origin of their culture and civilization. Let's keep the Owl of Pallas in the squares of Bloomsbury, keep the ugly marbles in London. <laughs> if only, if only because we are now in London, the only city in Europe where we maintain the custom of those soldiers you can see on the Athenian friezes who are trained to be anabates and apobates. To be able, like Diomedes, I think, in Book 5 of the Iliad, to mount and dismount a moving chariot. Because it is only here in London that you can defy the health and safety fanatics of Brussels and board, and thanks to the, thanks to the wonderful policies of this melody, board and alight from an open platform on one of our beautiful new Routemaster buses. Like, like, like the hop-on, like the hop-on, hop-off, hop-lights of ancient Greece. <laughs> Vote for the Greeks tonight, my friends. Vote for the Greeks tonight, because no matter how often or how badly they fell short, it was those Periclean ideals that correspond most closely to our own. Vote for the Greeks, and remember, as you vote, that it was the Greeks who gave humanity the vote. And it was the Romans who gave humanity the vote by their immortal spirit of insubordination. And it was the Romans who took that vote away. Thank you very much. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much, Boris. Um, Now, there are very, very few people in public life who would willingly take on Boris Johnson on a stage in open debate. I'm not sure that uh, Theresa May would have welcomed the chance of trying to squash Boris in open combat. I'm not even sure that George Osborne would have jumped at the chance. So put your hands together for a very, very courageous lady, Mary Beard. is an extremely hard act to follow Um, but then the Romans found the Greeks a hard act to follow and they managed it I have to say they even managed it, Boris, commercially because I just want to tell you that in the Lerb Classical Library series the best selling classical text is not Plato, Aristotle Sophocles, Euripides guess who it is Julius Caesar, the Gallic Wars, right? So just before you kind of back a slightly slightly Tory view about why the classics are worthwhile, remember that the bestsellers are Roman, right? Anyway, I am here to speak for the edgy, disreputable and sometimes hilarious world of ancient Rome, whose jokes you quoted. And I am not going to be resting my case on any priggish lesson in civilization that the Romans might offer, not even on the greats of Latin literature, nor on the great idealization of humanity. To be quite honest, Max read it brilliantly, but I'm not quite sure how much of Pericles I could take more than a quick paragraph or two. And, you know, I just did think of Protagoras in the sky listening to you saying, and he said, man is the measure of all things, and that comes from 5th century Athens. Poor old Protagoras ended up on trial for impiety in Athens. Let's just remember. <laughs> and while I'm on this kind of slightly schoolmistressly tone, and I've got to get it out of my system first, I don't know what you were looking at when you went to the British Museum 
And you looked at the Parthenon frieze, and I'm also rather pleased to have it there. You say, everybody's on the same level. Well, they are sort of on the same level, but the gods are sitting down. So if they were to stand up, they'd have been twice as big. And in the middle of the Blasted Temple, there was a 40-foot statue in gold and ivory of the goddess Athena, by the way. Right? Okay? And just, just as a final point, I didn't, what had happened to Sparta? What happened to Sparta in your discussion? Of, you know, this is all great. Where's the Dan Spartan boot camp? Greece is not just Athens, you know, sunshine. It really isn't, right? <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about wit, about multiculturalism, and I would have got cat gods in if I could, all right? And I'm going to be talking about high-rise living, unadorned realism, and political debate in a vast world of 50 million people. And I'm not going to be claiming that the Romans are models for us to admire. I'm going to say they rub our noses in the question of what it is to be us. Now, there were, I admit, just as there were plenty of Athenian prigs, there were plenty of Roman prigs too. And if you doubt me, go and read some Senecan philosophy. Um, Even leave aside the tragedies, read the philosophy. And although I'm leaving aside great literature, let's just say the Romans actually produced some of the most read and the greatest Western literature of all. In fact, one of our leading politicians did recently claim that the fourth book of Virgil's Aeneid, the one where Aeneas abandons Dido and she kills herself, was quite simply the best book of the best poem of the best poet. Do you reckon that? That might have been me. (laughs) (laughs) That was indeed Boris uh, in a book I... I told you I venerated. I fully recommend Boris's... signing tonight because he was concealing it but I have to say I fully recommend it as a fantastic and heartfelt paean of praise of ancient Rome (laughs) so the virtues of Roman literature we agree on now of course it goes without saying that Roman power was brutal the fact is all ancient cultures were horribly brutal in our standards The campaigns of Alexander, the so-called Great, unmentioned by Boris, the Athenian massacre at Milos, unmentioned by Boris, and the wars of Julius Caesar in Gaul, understandably unmentioned by Boris, seem to me to make pretty much a score draw when it comes to sheer nastiness. And uh, even the Greeks, by the way, as soon as they discovered gladiatorial games, they went for them absolutely fantastically, and they converted all their nice stadia into gladiatorial arenas. But happily, this isn't. They did. I'll show you where. What in Ephesus won this. <laughs> but this isn't a contest in niceness, because if it were, we might not find a winner. My support of the Romans rests on quite different things. It's about how they grappled with issues of civil liberty and electoral politics, how they managed to service urban living on a vast scale, and how they consistently incorporated rather than excluded people, whether that was offering a role for women, almost unknown in the ancient world apart from Sparta, or whether it was welcoming migrants and creating new citizens. In fact, I hope that everyone will take away tonight one date that should rival 1066 in the consciousness of the British, and that is 212 AD. It's the year when the Emperor Caracalla gave full Roman citizenship to all free inhabitants of the Roman Empire who didn't already have it. That meant 
30 million people got Roman citizenship at a stroke. It was the biggest grant of citizenship in the history of the planet, and it made everyone, even in this backwater province, fully and formally part of the wider world. Right, but let's start with liberty. <laughs> Libertas, the distinctive Roman watchword meaning freedom from impression, freedom in law, and the freedom of the individual in the face of the state. The watchword that powered the greatest revolutions of the modern world, the American and the French, liberté, égalité, and fraternité had nothing whatsoever to do with ancient Greece. It's entirely Roman. But liberty for the Romans was not just a simple Periclean slogan. Leaving aside all the kind of pontification, the real point for me is that the Romans were the first people systematically to debate the the limits of political liberty. They faced head-on the unanswerable questions that matter now to us most How far should the rights and the freedom of the individual citizen be suspended in the interests of homeland security? Big moment for Romans came in 63 BC when the consul Cicero claimed he had unearthed a terrorist plot to eliminate the government and to destroy Rome. He executed the presumed terrorists without trial. At first he was heroised, but soon he was exiled precisely because he had used the provision of a Prevention of Terrorism Act to justify summary execution. And they put up a shrine of liberty on the site of his house. Romans wrangled about that forever after, and they used arguments that still provide a framework. When we discuss Guantanamo Bay or drone strikes on British citizens who are fighting for ISIS... And they've never been more pointed than they are in this week. Those Roman issues are our issues. They were barely raised in ancient Greece. Liberty is not, of course, as Boris would say, the same as democracy. And Romans never claimed to be a democracy, um, which was a kind of newfangled, old-fangled Greek invention. But liberty did underpin a form of popular power in Rome that lasted longer and started earlier than the short-lived democracy of ancient Athens, which soon became under the, uh, the overarching power of the royals in Macedon, uh, never mind all the Greek cities that were never democracies at all. For half a millennium, From 509 BC, the Roman people were the sovereign body in the state with the freedom to elect whoever they wanted. Now, you only have to listen to Cicero's brother offering advice on how to canvass for election at Rome to see how we have inherited the Roman brand of politics. Here he is. I must tell you now about the other parts of your campaign. In particular how you get the electorate on your side. You have to learn the knack of remembering people's names (laughs) and an easy manner. You have to be seen everywhere. Be generous and get a good reputation. And you have to create a sense of hope for the future of the country. Whatever else you do, make sure you recognise the voters or make it look like you do. (laughs) Then just suppose there's some desirable quality you don't have... Pretend you do and make it look natural. (laughs) Flattery might be a pretty shabby thing in general, but when you're standing for election, it's essential. And make sure that you have a face, an expression, and style of conversation that matches the different expectations of the people that you meet. People like to have things promised to them. So if you're asked to sign up to something you can't do, either extricate yourself politely or promise it anyway. The former is the mark of a good man, the latter the mark of a good candidate. (laughs) The other thing you have to think about is your reputation and public opinion. Make sure you put all your efforts into being a good canvasser and and make sure that people talk about you as being a nice guy, that they're always coming to your house, that you look the part 
and that the electorate feel they're sharing in your fame. Your campaign has to be glamorous, but you have to dig up the dirt too. If you can, see that some accusations of crime, expenses fiddling, or a sex scandal are thrown at your rivals. <laughs> it is to the Romans, in other words, that we owe not so much the invention of dirty dealing, because the Athenians have been great at cheating in elections, but that wry, down-to-earth realism about how electoral processes operate. In fact, one little Greek princeling in the second century BC observed how canvassing went on in Rome and was so impressed that when he got back to his own kingdom, he actually tried going round the common people and shaking their hands, uh, trying to win their support. All it gave him amongst his own Greek subjects was the nickname Bonkers. Right. But let's move on to the city itself. Classical Athens was a very small place. There were perhaps 40,000 people, not all citizens, living in the city itself. That makes it roughly the size of the University of Manchester. Rome, by the first century BC, is a multicultural, bilingual world. As many people speaking Greek as they spoke Latin as their first language. And the city of Rome itself was the home to a million people. It was the biggest city in the West until 19th century London. The Romans were committed to make urban living, modern style, work. And in modern style too, they were committed to moaning about the tribulations of city life. And here's the curmudgeonly satirist juvenile complaining about not being able to get to sleep. Insomnia causes most deaths here, the complaint itself being brought on by indigestion. Rich food lying on a stomach sore with heartburn. Show me the apartment that lets you sleep. In this city, sleep costs millions. And that's the root of the trouble. The lorries thundering past through those narrow, twisting streets. The oaths of deliverymen caught in a traffic jam would rouse a dozing seal. Or even the mayor. <laughs> if a tycoon has an appointment, he rides there in a big litter. He can read or take notes or snooze as he jogs along. Those drawn blinds are most soporific. Even so, he outstrips us. However fast we pedestrians may hurry, crowds surge ahead. Those behind us buffet my ribcage. Poles poke into me. One lap swings a crossbeam down on my skull. Another scores with a barrel. There are various other nocturnal perils to be considered. There's a long way up to the rooftops. And a falling tile can brain you. Think of all those cracked or leaky vessels tossed out of the windows, the way they smash, their weight, the damage they do to the pavement. You'll be thought most improvident, a catastrophe-happy fool, if you don't make your will before venturing out to dinner. Each open upstairs window along your route at night may prove a death trap. So pray and hope, poor you, that the local housewives drop nothing worse on your head than a bucket full of slops. <laughs> That, I want to argue, is not idealism, that's realism, and that is us. Right? We have such an affinity, actually, with that kind of thing, that one-man shows run successfully in the West End for weeks and weeks, just reading that stuff out to us. It's only one side of the story. Rome devoted itself to organising big city life. And Boris knows just how hard that is. <laughs> they invented traffic rules, they invented planning legislation, they had running water and public lavatories. And if anyone thinks that's trivial, I suspect you ought to imagine what it might have been like going to the loo in 5th century Sparta. And you might think that Roman public lavs were a lot better. And Rome was the only place in the ancient world where the state took responsibility for ensuring its citizens had enough to eat. And 
just a matter of invention. It is worth saying that Roman concrete, as in the Pantheon, produced a span <coughs> of a dome that was not equaled till the 1960s. Right? Because top of the Roman agenda were the practical issues of living together and how you make a human community work. Finally, <coughs> Roman society incorporated those who were mostly excluded in the ancient world, most obviously women. In classical Athens, for all the blasted democracy, women had a ghastly time, they were often segregated, and they had few rights of any sort. They didn't have any formal political rights in Rome, but they did actually sit down and eat with men. They were allowed to go out in the street unveiled, and they had more economic independence than any women have had in this country up to the late 19th century. But there were other ways in which women were on the map. Almost all the literature written by them in Rome has been lost, and we can blame the medieval monks for that, for not copying it out. My favourite one would have been the autobiography of Nero's mother, Agrippina, which I think would have told us quite a lot about the life right, of the court. Would have, would have undermined your argument. But... <laughs> That would be good to have, you know. <coughs> what does survive from Rome, what does survive, are all kinds of attempts, admittedly by men, to construct a variety of female voices in Greek and Latin, not just suffering heroines, ridiculous parodies, or lovelorn females. So I'm going to ask you to try this spoof letter written in the 3rd century AD and ghosted for a feisty prostitute complaining that her favourite lover has given her up in favour of philosophy. <laughs> Ever since you got it into your head to study philosophy, you've become a frightfully serious kind of guy with those horrible knotted eyebrows. You wander off to the university with some old book in your hands and you walk right past my place as if you'd never seen it before. You've gone mad, my boy. Don't you realise what kind of person that professor of yours is, who looks so dreadfully severe when he delivers those amazing lectures to you students? How long do you think he's been pestering me for a date? <laughs> when he's already wrecking himself with the lovely Herpolis? I turned him down because I'd rather sleep with you than take the money of all the professors in the world. But since he seems to be putting you off me, perhaps I will ask him in, and then I'll be able to tell you what that perverted old misogynist is really like. Anyway, do you think a professor is really that much different from an escort girl? They have different means of persuasion, maybe, but honestly... They have the same aim, earning a crust. <laughs> we girls are much better and more God-fearing than the profs, though. We don't say the gods don't exist. We believe our lovers when they swear they love us. And we don't think men should sleep with their sisters or their mothers or even other men's wives. Maybe we seem not quite up to the academics because we don't know where the clouds come from what atoms look like. But no one who spends time with us ends up dreaming of revolution or overthrowing the state. In fact, they tend to stay in bed rather late in the morning, sleeping off the night before. You might even say that we are better than the profs at educating the young. For after all, God doesn't give us very long to live. Don't waste it on riddles and academic nonsense in that ivory tower of yours. Now for me, that is Roman culture all over. It's fun, it's warm, and it's raising more important points 
than you might think without all the fuss and pretension. It's asking, how do people learn? Does philosophy really make us better human beings or not? But ultimately, it was not just the incorporation of women into the state, into a role in the state, but it was the incorporation of new citizens into the state. Rome had a mechanism for becoming Roman. Now, classical Athens had such an exclusive and narrowly ethnic, you might almost call it racist policy, on who could become a citizen, that if we were using their rules, I'm not even certain that Boris would be a UK citizen. I mean, you were born in New York, weren't you? I think that could be a problem under Pericles, right? And what we would have lost. But in Rome, what Caracalla did in 212 AD, 212 AD, was only the final act in a long process, which started when the founder of Rome, Romulus, welcomed refugees and asylum seekers to his new city by the Tiber to be proper Roman citizens and which carried on as citizenship was spread among those whom Rome had at first conquered, and when people from far afield became Roman emperors. Trajan and Hadrian from Spain, Septimius Severus from North Africa. That could never have happened at Athens. And at the same time, slaves in their millions were freed at Rome, and in the process, completely unlike in the Greek world, they became full Roman citizens. Many fewer slaves were ever freed in Athens or any of the Greek states in which we know, Um, and if they were freed, they certainly didn't become citizens. This was an incorporating community. Now, some observant people in Greece early on spotted these weird habits of the Romans, and they were amazed. A few of the smartest began to think that maybe Roman openness was the secret of her success. And that's what I think I think too. I think Rome's real, Rome's rough, it's in your face, it's open, it's welcoming, and it's us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Beard, for a, a very fine speech with one or two barbs in it. Now then, we're going to have, a, we'll have a, a brief conversation amongst ourselves, and then quite soon it's going to be your turn to ask questions. Boris. Athens was incredibly open, and the contrast, you're right to draw the contrast with Sparta. Because the Spartans, every year, had a brutal ritual called the Exalasia, which, uh, where they kicked everybody out. Now, all the foreigners were kicked out of Sparta in a kind of ukippy sort of way. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a total disaster. And you know, as, you rightly, as you rightly say, uh, Mary, you go to Sparta, you look at the ruins of Sparta. Well, what is there? There's nothing there. It was Athens that was the open society that took people in, but that had, and they, we made them pay their, we made them, the Athens, not we, I wasn't mayor of Athens, but the, the, the Athenians made them pay their taxes. And you, Andrew, I've got one they question paid a big non tax. which people are going to need right. to know. Okay. When they are voting tonight, are they voting by changing the agenda and voting for Athens against Rome? Yes. Well, or are they voting for Greece against Rome? In which case, guys, as you vote, keep in mind the lavatories in Sparta. Right? Lavatories. All right, well, you can't have Athens Trying to get that Greece. out of our minds just for a second. It's now your turn to ask questions of both these great figures. As Mary rightly said, we generally see the Greeks through Roman tinted glasses, though it is seemingly an, un- un- an unanswerable question. What's your view on this? All right, well, let, let, let's start with the first question then. Are there Greek and Roman inheritances that we wish we didn't have? 
Oh, I could do without quite so much sport. <laughs> well, that, well I, I think that's a very good point. I think, I think it's, very, it's, it's, it's very interesting that that should be Mary's reaction. And, uh, because it was, after all, the... I mean, first of all, the Romans totally corrupted the Olympic Games by... Uh, their, Nero entered the Olympic Games and insisted on winning every single race himself. And he then, he then went in for the, what were they, the sort of cultural Olympiad, and, uh, where he would play the lyre, and he, nobody was allowed to leave the room uh, whilst Nero was playing, unless they were dead. So, so people would actually pretend to have died in order to get out of, uh, get out of listening to Nero. The Romans are not content with totally ruining the, eth- the, 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 the ethos of the uh, Olympic Games and, the, and the, the, the spirit of sporting amateurism. The Romans then in 380 AD, I seem to remember, actually abolished uh, the Olympic Games because they didn't like, they, they, they didn't like you, contrary to your stuff about the, uh, the Greeks being priggish, the Romans, the Romans didn't like people running around with no clothes on. They thought it was... They thought it was Unattractive. And, the and, 6th uh, century BC. And it, it, we had to revive it. It took the British to revive competitive sport. And Why did you leave the clothes more, on? More, more, questions, more questions, chaps. Okay, a question here. Yeah. Uh, my question is about me as an individual. As a non-native Londoner who is female and loves my job and loves earning my own money and loves going out and enjoying myself and having a wide variety of cuisines and loves travelling... Where would I be most happy? Would I be happiest in Greece or would I be happiest in Rome? I think, very good question. Sorry. Well, I think, you, I think you'd be better off in London, obviously, by <laughs> my You probably, depending on when you were there, you'd have a, you'd have, you could have a pretty good time in both places. <laughs> Just as long as you didn't want any control over your property. Um, You didn't really want to go out the street with a veil and you never wanted to have dinner with a bloke. Otherwise, that's in super. One minute summing up first. Mary goes first and then Boris. Mary. I just want to say, very simply, that it's easy to make Greece look like that haven of pleasure and virtue if all you do is cherry-pick. You know, you take Athens, you forget about every other city that there is, you take one period, you forget that uh, Protagoras was actually charged for impiety, for stressing the importance of man, you don't mention uh, the trial of Socrates. Um, for me, I think um, there's loads of things. The Romans thought Greece was great. Um, there are absolute bastards and brutal monsters in both cultures. But let's take it as a whole and let's go for Rome. And just to give you the one final thing to take away after you voted, so it's no good, uh, I think it would be absolutely true to say that there has not been a single day, and I think Boris will admit this, there's not been a single day since 19 BC when someone in Europe and the West has not been reading the Aeneid. And at that point, you think, eat your heart out, Homer, because there's been many years when Greek literature has not been read. Roman literature is absolutely central throughout <coughs> Western history. Boris, over to you. Uh, and, and though it is now true, as I, as I said, that Homer is, is much more read than Virgil. But, uh, look, look, I think it's been a, a, a fantastically interesting <laughs> conversation. And... You know, I, I, I respect very much some of the points that, that Mary has made. Clearly, clearly it, is, it is the case that the, uh, the Romans transmitted Greek culture to us, and we're, we're very grateful uh, to that. They also learned massively from Greece. I happen to think that there was a colossal spiritual difference. But perhaps I'm, uh, I am narrowing the field of argument. But there was, there was, there's no example of there's no there's no real example of Roman cultural civilization that came close to Periclean Athens in its fecundity, in its generosity, in its openness, and its originality. And it was a quite unbelievable period of history. And it did produce these imperishable masterpieces of literature and of philosophy and of history and biography and all the art forms that we've discussed this evening. That is our overwhelming debt to Greek culture. And I just, I just return 
to my, my crucial central point, which is that fundamentally, deep down, in their hearts, perhaps because of their system of child-rearing, which was considerably nastier than Dr. Spock, uh, the Romans were a very, very tough bunch, and they were very nasty to each other. And whatever happened to Protagoras, and whatever happened to Socrates, was nothing compared to the savagery that the Romans meted out to each other and to the people they oppressed and they colonised. And I think it is amazing that we should be sitting here tonight and trying to defend what was, after all, an undemocratic tyranny. Tonight, folks, you should be voting. You should be voting for the most important principle in our politics, and that is democracy. Vote Tell that right people of vote, right? The Greeks gave it to you. But the question 416, is... they got all massacred by the Athenians. To a man. The question now is, folks, not how you should vote, but how you did vote. And I have to say, all the way through, you've had an entirely biased chair. I was pro-Greece and anti-Rome all the way through. But I have to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you have voted for the bastards. You have voted for the aggressive Romans. Overwhelmingly. of you voted for Rome, 44% of you voted for Greece, and that was a 9% swing from the Greeks to the Romans. Not the kind of thing you want to write. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback, what you think we should be talking about next, and what our future debates should be. So send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, head over to intelligencesquared.com.